Well, friends, uh, this morning we are continuing with our uh, sermon series together called uh, Show and Tell the Early Church. Uh, as I mentioned last Sunday, the idea for this series is uh, each Sunday uh, of this month, I'll bring in some, some item, some object that connects uh, to the earliest church. And we'll talk about how it speaks to our history uh, as Christians and how it speaks to who we are as a people of faith. Uh, last week, I brought in two Roman coins, and this week, uh, have a somewhat more uh, fragile and a little bit more valuable object. Uh, in fact, as my wife will lovingly tell you, this is the reason I now have a budget for my uh, hobby of collecting church items. Uh, but this morning I have a Roman terracotta lamp, a clay lamp. Uh, it is a little small, so there uh, is a slide. Uh, it's made out of uh, red clay. It would have been filled with oil. It's got a little nozzle where there would have been a, a wick that would have been lit. Uh, and it even has a little handle uh, that someone could use to carry it around the house uh, or to read at night. Uh, but what's really unique about this lamp and the reason why this, uh, I guess, speaks to our history as Christians is that it was made in Roman North Africa. So think uh, Morocco, Algeria, think the northwest uh, coast of Africa. It was made sometime in the fourth century, which was a very very significant time for our faith as we talked about last week and the top of it has been stamped with one of the earliest symbols of our faith the chi rho we actually have the exact same symbol carved on our altar back there you've been staring at it every sunday that you've worshiped here but i'm not sure how many folks have noticed uh, and for folks who may not know uh, the chi rho this is your fun fact of the week uh, it is the first two letters of the name Christ in Greek. It's the chi, which to us looks like an X, and the rho, which to us looks like a P, put together. So it was a symbol that represents uh, Christ in Greek. And the scripture reading uh, that we have this morning to go along uh, with our, our lamp as we pick this apart uh, comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, uh, chapter 4, verses 14 to 25. And, well, as, as we think about church history, maybe it's the fact that our earliest brothers and sisters had to face so many serious issues, but it feels like more or slightly heavier issues keep coming up. And so this morning, we're talking about the idea of truth and what that looks like for us as Christians. Uh, but Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 14 to 25. Friends, listen now for the word of the Lord. We must no longer be children, tossed to and fro and bl blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness in deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. Now this I affirm and insist on in the Lord. We must no longer live as the Gentiles live, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding, 
alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance and hardness of heart. They have lost all sensitivity and have abandoned themselves to licentiousness, greed, to practice of every uh, kind of impurity. But this is not the way you learned Christ. For surely you have heard about him and were taught in him as truth is in Jesus. You were taught to put away your former way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lusts, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to clothe yourselves with the new self created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So then, putting away all falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, please pray with me. Lord of truth, if this message speaks your truth, then let it be heard and remembered by someone here. But Lord, if this message does not speak your truth, then let it be forgotten in a moment. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. The Christian who first owned this lamp would not have thought of Jesus Christ as a suffering Savior. As strange and maybe even unthinkable as it, is, as it is for us to imagine today when the Christians of Roman North Africa read our scriptures, confessed our faith, and gazed at crude paintings of Jesus on the walls of their house churches, they didn't think of Christ as the sacrificial lamb of God or a Messiah on the cross. At the time that this lamp was in use, the cross wasn't even the main symbol of our faith. It actually took a couple centuries for the church to adopt the cross as a symbol of hope and faith. The earliest Christians used other symbols for our faith. The fish, the good shepherd, or the Cairo on our lamp. And when those fourth century Christians of North Africa thought about who Jesus was, when they thought about his identity, his function, his role, his character, they didn't think first and foremost about a cross. They thought about truth. Most of our earliest brothers and sisters in Roman North Africa understood Jesus Christ primarily as truth itself incarnate. It's very different from how we're taught to think about Christ and our faith in 21st century America, but that doesn't mean it's wrong, just different. They appreciated an aspect of our faith that maybe we've forgotten a bit over time. They knew that Jesus died on the cross, and they believed, like us, that it was by his life, death, and resurrection that they were saved, but they didn't see Christianity as a system of rituals and creeds so much as a path to higher truth. They didn't imagine Christ as a conquering savior so much as 
a teacher giving divine wisdom to a group of students surrounding him. They didn't imagine Jesus as a healer so much as the word that became flesh and dwelled among us, as the Gospel of John puts it uh, in chapter 1. And when they thought about what it meant to be a Christian, they thought about learning, about asking hard questions, about critical thinking about pursuing the truth, no matter how challenging, unsettling, and uncomfortable truth may be. All truth is God's truth, they would tell us. Truth is in Jesus. They would say with Paul, and to be a Christian, to follow Christ, is not to be afraid to ask questions. To not hesitate for a moment to think and to be changed by the light of truth in order to grow into the light of life. This lamp isn't just a tool. It is maybe the perfect metaphor, the perfect symbol for the light of truth that Christians are called to follow in a sometimes dark world. Unfortunately, seeking the truth was not a very easy calling in the 4th century world. The 4th century was a time marked by all kinds of elaborate cults and mystery religions and self-appointed prophets that could spin and twist information in all sorts of ways, either because they wanted the facts to line up with their view of the world or because they wanted the truth to make them feel good. In Egypt, there was actually a group of Christians called the Gnostics, who believed that Jesus Christ had given his 12 disciples secret knowledge that he hadn't given to anyone else, and they thought that they were special and superior to everyone else because they had uncovered this secret knowledge. They had absolutely no evidence to back this secret up, but they were convinced they had it all figured out, and if you didn't agree with them, that just proved you weren't one of the enlightened ones, a title that they actually gave to themselves. Gnosticism was a myth, but it was a myth people believed because it made them feel special, feel wiser, feel part of something bigger than themselves. It made them feel good to believe it, so they didn't think about it. In North Africa itself, there was another movement, the Donatists. It was a movement of Christians who believed that certain bishops and church leaders did not deserve their office, and had no authority to lead because these leaders had somehow betrayed the true faith. They caused division, inflicted violence, spouted a lot of hate, and even formed their own separatist church that was supposed to be more holy and pure than the corrupted church. Donatism was a self-righteous fantasy, but it was a fantasy that confirmed their view of the world. It told them what they wanted to believe, so they didn't question it. And there were all sorts of groups like that. The list goes on. The Marcionites in Rome, the Deceticists in Greece, the Sibelians in Spain, the Arians, the Monetists. There was a virtual ocean 
of self-appointed prophets and zealous groups all out to convince you that the myth, the story, the view they believed was true because it was something you might want to be true or because it might make you feel good to believe it, feel part of something, feel included. Truth in the fourth century world could almost be whatever you wanted it to be. Tragically, that ancient world may not sound all that ancient to us. How many times do we hear talking heads on TV push this or that theory at us with passion and conviction but without much logic or evidence? How many listeners today believe this or that because it confirms what they want to see but never encourages them to ask, is this true? How many half-truths, deceptions, secret knowledge swirls around on the internet or gets plastered on social media? And how often do we catch ourselves, all of us, thinking those people are wrong? It's those people who are telling lies without ever asking ourselves if we are right or if we might be wrong. There might be things we believe because we want to or because it makes us feel good. In many ways, our world today may not always be all that different from the fourth century world that produced this lamp. Like our long-lost brothers and sisters from North Africa, we are all still tempted in all sorts of ways to make truth into whatever we want it to be. But the good news that our African brothers and sisters understood so well is that that isn't the truth we are called to seek. Even before the fourth century, St. Paul knew what it was to live in a time of convenient half-truths and pleasant deceptions. And Paul had no intention of letting his first Christian communities go along with it or be a part of it. In that scripture passage, Paul says, This I affirm and insist on in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles live. It was kind of a term for non-Christians or non-Jews. In the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance. But that is not the way you learned of Christ, Paul says. For surely, and this is important, verse 21, surely you have heard about him and were taught in him, for truth is in Jesus. Paul would have agreed absolutely with the Christians of Roman North Africa. Yes, Christ is a suffering Savior who died on the cross for us, but what Paul knew, what the owner of this lamp understood, and what we sometimes are tempted to forget is that Christ Jesus is also truth itself. It's a great mystery of our faith, the Word of God the reason behind the universe, the wisdom that holds up through every changing age, truth put on flesh and dwelled among us. And to follow Christ Jesus is not just to live in blissful ignorance, but to be a student. 
to be a thinker, someone who is eager for real understanding and will not settle for convenient answers that the world sometimes throws at us. We must no longer be children, Paul says, tossed here and there to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by trickery, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We must grow in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And that may be the real blessing, the real hope that our faith offers us in a world of convenient falsehoods. That's the challenging call that our Savior makes that Paul and the North Africans heard so clearly. Critical thinking, hard questions, constant learning, chasing the truth, these things are essential to our faith because truth changes, challenges, grows, and draws us closer to Christ. Paul's all-time favorite metaphor for describing what faith does to us, the change that faith makes, is saying that faith takes off our old self and puts on Christ. That image appears all throughout the New Testament. But what's so incredible about it and what so few people appreciate is that that metaphor, that faith transformation unfolds in large part as a process of learning, of questioning, of thinking. Notice that in our scripture passage to the Ephesians, Paul says, you were taught to put away your former way of life and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And that isn't some isolated fluke idea either. It is everywhere in Paul's writings. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Colossians 3, you have taken off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourself with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge. Or my personal favorite, 1 Corinthians 14, 20, brothers and sisters, do not be children in your thinking, rather be infants in in evil, but in thinking, be adults, being reborn in the spirit and being renewed in our minds are linked. They are inseparable. And so Paul wants Christians who think critically. He wants believers who are prepared to be the most skeptical person in the room sometimes, to be open to new ideas, to question, to pick apart everything in the world, including what we believe and why we believe it. Paul wants disciples who are not afraid to chase the truth, however challenging, unsettling, and transformative it may be, because as Paul preached and as our North African brothers and sisters learned, the miracle is truth is in Christ. We may sometimes forget it in a confusing world of conflicting ideas that so often settles for comforting myths rather than challenging truths. 
but from Paul's first century to the fourth century to the 21st century, the hope, the joy, and the strength our faith gives us in this confusing world is the good news that truth is in Jesus and truth is always there to change and guide us. We don't have to be afraid to ask hard questions, to question everything, or be afraid of what our questions might uncover. We don't have to settle for whatever answers happen to be convenient that confirm what we want to believe or that just make us feel good. We don't have to be tossed back and forth by all the empty theories and schemes that tug and pull at us from every direction. But in a world of confusion, we are disciples of a Savior who calls us to chase truth, calls us to learn and to grow, knowing that no matter where truth leads us, Christ will find us. And we are called to speak the truth in love, to take off our old self and put on Christ and do it all, knowing that it's when we follow the light of truth, that lamp in the dark, that we draw closer and closer to the light of life. And thanks be to God for it. Amen. Friends, please pray with me. Christ Jesus, you are the Word made flesh. You are the keeper of grace. You are the maker of truth. So, Lord, open our minds and guide our thoughts that we might be disciples and students chasing your light in the dark. Christ, in a world of misunderstanding, give us the courage to ask the questions no one else dares, to be open to answers not our own. Christ, in a culture where truth is sometimes whatever we want, whatever is convenient, whatever feels good, give us the will to never settle for how we see the world, but to always hunger for how you see the world. Light of truth, light of life, grant our minds your light this day, that we may grow in love and always grow to be like you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.